turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter. We're going to be reading in just a minute chapter 2, the second half of it. Peter, of course, was Jesus' lead disciple. And he's writing this letter about 30 years after he personally witnessed the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In those 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, in those 30 years, Peter had personally testified hundreds, probably thousands of times to what he had personally witnessed. And over those years, he had also witnessed the gospel of Jesus advance rapidly through the Roman world. Here, he's actually writing this letter from Rome to suffering Christians who've been dispersed in Turkey. The Roman emperor considered Christians rabble-rousers, and he forced them out of their homes to be refugees far away from home. Their lives had been turned upside down. It was completely unfair. You could just imagine hearing them saying, but it wasn't fair. Life's not fair. That's the kind of person that Peter is writing to. And tonight we read 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25. To this point in the letter, Peter has been reminding them that they have a hope because of their faith in Jesus, because Jesus is alive. They have an inheritance. And if they grasp that hope, it will change their lives so that they'll be devoted to the Lord and, and they will love others. And he goes on to really develop and describe in more detail right here the kind of changed life that should mark a Christian because of the hope that's ours because of the resurrection. He says, 1 Peter 2.13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, your Christian family. Fear God. Honor the emperor. For Christians, clearly, submission to authority is our default position. And even when we can't submit because of our Christian conscience, we still should consider authority to be worthy of respect. Peter continues, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Many of the refugees to whom Peter's writing had fled into this foreign territory and they had basically pled for mercy from wealthy landowners saying, could we be a household servant of yours? Would you give us shelter? Maybe give us a little food? Would you care for us if we would just commit to you our lives and, and our work? And these servants were often devalued. They were treated poorly. But Peter, it's remarkable. He urges submission as much as possible and all respect, respect all the time. He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's central point in the passage is that those who've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus' death are summoned to endure unjust suffering following his example in death. Those of us who have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus' death, we are summoned by Jesus to endure unjust suffering That's our summons, and we are to follow his example in death in this respect. I get that word summons from verse 21, where Peter says, you were called to this. That word called doesn't just mean like pick up the phone and say, hey, would you come over? It is a military summons. You have been summoned to unjust suffering. By the master and commander, Jesus himself, you've been summoned to endure unjust suffering. And Peter gives a couple examples. For example, in verses 13 to 17, he talks about suffering under unjust government. Government should be there to reward the good and to punish the evil. But Peter is implying here that government is often, is always corrupt. Or verses 18 to 20, he talks about suffering under a cruel, unjust employer. He's actually in the next verses, the first seven verses of chapter 3, going to talk about suffering in a difficult marriage. And in the coming weeks, we're going to go into more detail in those kinds of, of realms, government, work, and home. But tonight, we're focusing on the central principle, and that is, we've been summoned to follow Jesus into unjust suffering. This is the summons of every Christian from our Lord. Are you going to follow him? That's the question. I want to unpack just the two facets of Peter's thinking here, of his reasoning. And the first is this. Peter reminds every Christian that the Messiah suffered as your substitute. This is the ground of the passage. He actually states it second. The ground of the passage is that the Messiah suffered as your substitute. This is why, Tri-County, we must never forget the cross. The theme of tonight's service, we must never forget the crucifixion. Not only the historical event, but as much as we remember the event, we need to remember the significance, the power of it, the why of it. 
What did Jesus do when he died by crucifixion? We've gone over it and over it in our songs and in our prayers. But simply put, verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Then Peter strengthens his message, that central message about what Jesus did on the cross by quoting a prophecy from Isaiah that had been written 700 years before Peter. It's actually at the end of verse 24 and then at the beginning of verse 25, he quotes Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6. Again, that's from 700 years before. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've been reconciled to God. He's quoting Isaiah 53. And it's at this point I want to say, let me do a little teaching. Let me introduce you or remind you of three critical terms that precisely explain what the Apostle Peter understood to be the significance of Jesus' crucifixion. I get these three terms from Dr. John Thornberry, pastor for 50 years, not too far, maybe four or five hours from here. The three terms are penal, substitutionary, and expiatory. These are not original with Dr. Thornberry. They've been understood all throughout church history. Penal. What does it mean that the cross, the crucifixion, was penal. It means he was suffering the penalty, the legal penalty. What does it mean that he was suffering on the cross substitutionarily or as as our substitute? It means that he was dying in our place. Peter says, verse 21, he suffered for you. He's going to say in the next chapter, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. And the third term is expiatory. This means that it was actually effective in erasing our guilt, in cleansing our guilt, and reconciling us to God. According to Peter, the crucifixion of Jesus was a penal substitute that could actually expiate our sin, our guilt, and bring us to God. Now, as you can probably see, the only way that Jesus' death will actually be personally significant for us is if we acknowledge our nature, right? The only thing, the only way that, that this, this message matters to us is if we understand that we have legal guilt for which we will be penalized. If we understand that we need a substitute who will die in our place if we understand that we need to be reconciled to God. It is certainly not popular to say it, but humans have a nature that rejects God's authority. It is true. And because of our law-breaking, we are under God's sentence of judgment. Is there any hope? According to Jesus and his apostles, the only hope is that Jesus was the Son of God who was hoisted up on a tree to bear our penalty in our place so that we could be cleansed of guilt and reconciled to God. This is the only hope we have. And if you've never committed your life to Jesus, the crucified Messiah, I urge you to do it tonight.
would be a good Friday indeed. Peter reminds every Christian that the Messiah suffered as your substitute. And then he reminds every Christian that the Messiah suffered as your example. This is the application he's driving at. Every person who's chosen to follow Jesus and rely on his substitutionary atonement now has a powerful example to follow. A powerful example of how to endure when you suffer unjustly. Peter stresses a few of the features. In verse 22, he says, despite Jesus' unjust suffering, he was sinless. Peter's not suggesting that Christians can live in a perfect, sinless way. Instead, he's basically saying, don't use your suffering as an excuse for sin. Jesus suffered and was sinless. He reminds us in verse 23 that Jesus didn't revile or threaten. When he was mocked, he didn't mock back. When he was hit, he didn't swing back. Again, it's critical to clarify what what Peter means and doesn't mean here. He isn't encouraging Christians to be entirely passive. If you read the crucifixion accounts, you actually understand that at one point, Jesus actually requested legal evidence for the charge that was being brought against him. It's not that you can't stand up for legal rights, but Peter's concern is that we follow Jesus in not being disrespectful, in choosing not to be violent, in choosing not to be vindictive. That's what we should not be. But then positively, Peter, at the end of verse 23, says, Jesus, while he was being crucified, actually kept committing himself to God knowing that God would bring final justice. You say, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? Do you remember in the garden as he was about to suffer? Jesus prayed, yet not what I will, not what I want, but your will be done, Father. Or you might remember on the cross, Jesus, right before he died, he said, into your hands, Father, I commit my soul. I commit my spirit. Beginning to end of his suffering, Jesus was intentionally, continually, prayerfully committing himself to God, saying, I'm going to follow you no matter how hard it is. Father, I am committed to you to the very end. I'm going to keep committing and recommitting and recommitting myself to you. According to Peter, we need to follow Jesus' example in suffering. If you are suffering unjustly, don't get disrespectful. Don't try to retaliate. Instead, actively, continually, prayerfully commit your situation and your life to God. I'll conclude with a powerful example of how the crucifixion of Jesus fuels Christian endurance in the midst of unjust suffering. It actually comes from one of the best-selling Christian biographies over the past century, The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. It was first published in 1971 when Corey was near 80 years old. Corey Tenboom was raised by her father, Casper. He was a Dutch watchmaker, and the family lived there in the Netherlands with siblings and aunts. The family was characterized by a 
of very vital living faith in the Lord Jesus. They were members of the Dutch Reformed Church. And every evening, Casper led the family in extensive Bible reading and discussion. He particularly loved the Old Testament. When Germany invaded the Netherlands in 1940, the Ten Booms chose to outfit their home with a hidden room upstairs where they could hide Jews. It's estimated that the Ten Booms' underground activity, not just what took place in their house, but other underground activities, they saved about a total of 800 Jews during those five years. But in February 1944, four years after the occupation of the Netherlands by Germany, Casper, Betsy, and Corey were discovered, they were arrested, and they were imprisoned by the Germans for their underground work. Remarkably, there were six people hiding in their home at the time of their arrest, and they eventually made it out safely. They stayed in that room for days until they tried to come out and the guards outside had left. Casper, father, who was 84, died within two weeks of being imprisoned. The two girls were actually incarcerated for a few months in the Netherlands, in the capital city, which the Germans had taken over. And then, after a few months, in middle of 1944, they were transferred to Ravensbrück, a concentration camp for women in Germany. During six years of operation, Ravensbrück housed 130,000 inmates and they exterminated nearly half of them. Corey described their experience in this extermination camp like this. So Betsy and I arrived at Barracks 8 in the small hours of that morning, bringing not only the Bible, but a new knowledge of the power of him whose story it was. There were three women already asleep in the bed that was assigned to us. They made room for us as best as they could. Corey says, but life from there only grew harder and harder. There was too much pointless suffering. Every day something else failed to make sense. But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear, and that was the reason that the two of us, Betsy and I, were here. Why others were called to suffer, we were not shown. She says, but as for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like homeless people clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered around that Bible, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night grew around us, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. She goes on to describe how Romans 8 became precious. She says, she says, it's not that we will be more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. She said, it was like God was writing those promises to us in that prison, in that place. She said, it was almost like the ink was still drying on our Bibles. It was that relevant to daily life. She goes on to say, Fridays. 
the recurring humiliation of medical inspection. The hospital corridor in which we waited was unheated, and a fall chill had settled into the walls. Still, we were forbidden even to wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain our erect hands-at-sides position as we filed slowly past a group of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Surely there is no more wretched sight than the human body unloved and uncared for. She says, nor could I even see the necessity for complete undressing. When we finally reached the examining room, a doctor looked down our throats. Another, we presumed was a dentist, looked at our teeth. And then a third checked in between our fingers. That was all. Then we trooped again down the long, cold corridor, and we picked up our X-marked dresses at the door. She says, but it was one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. She said, I didn't know. I hadn't thought about that. All the paintings and the carved crucifixes that I had seen, they showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was just the respect and the reverence of the artist. But oh, at the event itself, on that other Friday, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. She said, I leaned toward Betsy, who was ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blade stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue-mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. And ahead of me, I heard a little gasp from Betsy. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. The two girls there thanked Jesus for the humiliation he endured. Corey and Betsy would eventually be transferred to a different barracks from 8, which was a quarantine barracks, to 28, which was forced labor. They would work 11-hour days, and yet they'd still come back and they'd open the Bible, which they had been able, by God's grace, to smuggle past several guards. And they read substantial portions of the scriptures in groups with dozens of women. Shortly before Betsy's death later that year, Corey and Betsy were transferred to a medical ward. In their own words, they said, there in the medical ward, we experienced the closest, most joyous weeks of all time in Ravensbrook. Side by side, in the sanctuary of God's fleas. It was a flea-infested camp. Side by side, Betsy and I ministered the word to all in the room. We sat by deathbeds that became doorways to heaven. We watched women who had lost everything grow rich in hope. Hope that was rooted in scripture. Betsy died at 59 years old just before Christmas of that year. She had been in prison for almost a year. Two weeks later, two weeks after Betsy's passing, Corey was released. She went back to Ravensbrook 15 years later and uh, Corey learned that she had been released from Ravensbrook on accident 
due to a clerical error. For Corey and Betsy, unjust suffering became an opportunity to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus' example, and to testify of him. In the darkest season, I don't know that I can imagine a much darker season, it was Jesus' example of enduring humiliating and unjust suffering that gave these two women strength to endure their own unjust suffering. And now, I state the conclusion. It's a simple argument from the greater to the lesser. Are you suffering? Are you suffering unjustly? Maybe it's at home. You're constantly getting falsely accused by an unbelieving spouse. Maybe it's at work. You're constantly being belittled. You're not appreciated. You're being cheated. Many Christians suffer unjustly. In fact, Christians are summoned to suffer unjustly. But I'm not sure if any of us right now are enduring the kind of suffering that Betsy and Corey suffered. And if the message of Jesus' suffering could fuel their endurance, and if the power of Jesus' example could strengthen them for endurance, it can most certainly fuel our endurance when we suffer unjustly in ways that are by comparison smaller. Peter says, to this you have been summoned. Because the Messiah suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Let's treasure the cross, never forget it. And let's follow his example as we endure grievous sufferings. Oh, Father, Please open our eyes to the glory of Jesus. May we not look elsewhere when we're suffering for help, but may we center on Christ, his substitutionary sufferings, his exemplary sufferings for his glory and our good, I pray. Amen.